The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. Open, open, your, 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 my, my, my. And we're back to another edition of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but we have another fascinating show lined up for everyone tonight. Genevieve, how are you doing on this Sunday evening? I'm doing very well. As usual, excited um, for this week's show. Yeah, no, we have a really cool show lined up tonight. But before I proceed, I just want to take a, a quick second here and uh, express our condolences. We lost Stanton Friedman. Uh, Stanton Friedman was the uh, nuclear physicist, the first civilian investigator of the Roswell crash. His contributions to that and... Another two very popular cases that I think anyone that, that is into this topic knows about, the Betty and Barney Hill case and the Travis Walton case. It's definitely going to be a huge loss. Even, you know, someone who had some differences with Stanton over the years, over the, uh, the story of Bob Lazar was uh, one of our previous guests, Jeremy Corbell, and he also expressed that it was a great loss. And I think that that's what this field needs. Uh, you know, we need a balance. We can't just all agree on one thing necessarily because it will hinder uh, our understanding in the long run. We had the good fortune of interviewing uh, Mr. Stanton Friedman on a couple of occasions. Uh, the last one being at Contact in the Desert conference from a few years back. You can find those on our YouTube channel. And we sent our condolences to Stanton's family and his fans all around the world, Godspeed, Mr. Freeman. I'm sure you're getting all the answers to those mysteries now. That said, I definitely want to get into tonight's topic with our guest, Dr. Uh, Michael Johnson. So uh, before I continue talking, Genevieve, why don't you do us the honor of introducing tonight's guest? Yes, so this is taken from his bio on the Contact in the Desert website. Dr. Michael Johnson is a retired Harvard Medical School psychiatrist and professor. He received his BA from Earlham College in Richmond, Indiana, and MD from Indiana University School of Medicine. After completing his medical residency in psychiatry, Dr. Johnson served as a lieutenant commander and staff psychiatrist at a U.S. Naval Hospital, and later moved to Boston to become the psychiatrist-in-chief at the Massachusetts Osteopathic Hospital, before finally taking the position as staff psychiatrist at Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates in Cambridge. Not long after taking the position of clinical instructor in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Johnson received the Robert H. Ebert Teaching Award for Harvard Medical Associates. He also received the Harvard Macy Scholar Award and the Solomon Peer Recognition Award while teaching. Dr. Johnson was also a proud member of the Harvard Longwood Residency Neurosciences Task Force, the Traditional Chinese Medicine World Foundation, and the Science Advisory Board at Art Light Systems, Inc. In Dr. Johnson's 35 years in Boston, he saw a wide variety of clients, ranging from nationally and internationally known figures in astrophysics, sciences, arts, education, and business, 
to persons serving in the most fundamental levels of our culture. Dr. Johnson's first contact with abduction experiences was just after a fellow renowned Harvard physician, Dr. John Mack, referred one of his abductee patients to him. After hearing of the abductee's experiences, Dr. Johnson continued to research the phenomena and has unearthed an incredible amount of material. From ever-advancing neuroimaging technology to increased professional interest from across the world, Dr. Johnson has been at the forefront of the medical investigations of abduction, leading him to develop the unforgettable lecture that we will be seeing at this year's Contact in the Desert 2019. With that said, I can't wait to uh, have our guest uh, join us on the line. Dr. Johnson, can you hear us okay? Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us tonight. We're really interested to to learn a little bit more about you. And why don't we start with when you first came across this phenomenon, which was the, the abduction phenomena, and what aspect of it caught your attention? I was a uh, junior psychiatrist in Cambridge, and John Mack, uh, Dr. John Mack, who was chair of the Department of Psychiatry, referred uh, several of his patients to me because at that point I had established a, uh, a reputation for being an excellent diagnostician. And John was scrupulous in that he wanted to be sure that the uh, patients that he was reporting abduction or experience phenomenon that he wanted to be sure that these people were well-screened psychiatrically. He wanted the uh, pure story. So he would refer patients to me for me to take a look. And one of those cases uh, was so compelling that I had no doubt that it was a, an authentic uh, experience. This uh, woman was a professional woman in her 30s. She was a, uh, a um, network correspondent. Uh, with one of the major media stations in Boston at that time. She was a successful woman, had uh, perfectly normal relationships personally. Uh, John referred her to me. Uh, I saw her one morning. Uh, she described the following uh, case. She was sitting at her kitchen table. This was on a weekend. And um, uh, as she was sitting there looking out on her back patio, a craft landed uh, outside of her house. She saw three aliens, small greys, walk through her walls. At that point, she lost awareness. When she came to, uh, one of the major alien figures was doing something in her abdomen through her abdominal wall. When this was occurring, she was both simultaneously terrified and yet felt very safe, almost as if she were protected. She had no pain. She felt, however, movement inside her abdomen. It was very brief, a matter of minutes. And then she lost awareness again. She woke up. She sat up on her kitchen table and saw the aliens walk through her walls into the craft and then leave. That case convinced me that uh, I needed to pay attention more to such cases. John wrote the first 100 cases of abduction and experience, and that was in the book Abduction, which many people are familiar with. He wrote another book called Passports of the Cosmos, in which he described another 100 cases. And most of these cases were authenticated. These were not just reports. They were uh, confirmed by others 
who were also providing information. After those 200 cases, another uh, clinician wrote another 200 cases beyond those. So we've got, you know, at that point, that was back in the 90s, we had substantiated good cases. That case convinced me to follow the field. I'd like to know what about that case as well as um, others? What makes a case particularly um, believable or compelling? Is it the person's credentials, their background, or the way they deliver it or pass certain tests? It's a complex matter. You're, have, you're having to assess the um, psychological health of the individual who's reporting. You have to see their life in context. That is, how are other parts of their life going? How do they present in the conversation? Now, in this case, the remarkable thing about those cases back in the 90s was that they were all somewhat similar in their nature. People would report very similar elements. And these were people at that point, we didn't have the internet. So these people were in remote locations, and yet their stories were very consistent. And this was happening in several parts of the world, not just the United States. One of the things that I kind of find interesting is there seems to be some general themes that seem to pop up in a lot of these cases. You know, a lot of the people that have these experiences will come away with a very, you know, like a new outlook on our life as a species on this planet. Others will have, uh, you know, very uh, transcendental and spiritual experiences. Of these cases, what are some of the themes that you see and what, what are these people experiencing? Is it just all in their head uh, or uh, are they actually coming into contact with entities from somewhere else? Well, if you start with the early reports, uh, Whitley Stryber, for example, he's written out several books. The last book is about his um, uh, experiences as a child. Uh, visiting a school of alien uh, entities. But the, the thing that you're talking about, the transcendental nature that people um, develop after such an experience, I think it is transcendent in, in that they, there's a profound sense of not being alone in the universe. Uh, there's a, an odd uh, kind of intimacy that develops. It's sort of like a a feeling of safety and yet apprehension at the same time. Uh, I don't think this is uh, necessarily something that people universally experience. I, I understand there's a nosology now of alien species, some of which are not friendly. Uh, I understand there are alien species that we are now working with uh, in the uh, uh, Navy and uh we just know that there are several types. I think uh, presently uh, people have the experience of telepathic communication. It's as if the uh, alien uh, communicators uh, can uh, articulate uh, awareness in the mind and there's a communication that occurs there. I think we're seeing in crop circles an effort to communicate. We're having trouble decoding the crop circles. They're occurring all around the earth now, uh, currently cropping up in Brazil, apparently. So they're communicating in a variety of different ways. Once one is open to the possibility of alien intelligence being present, 
it changes your perspective on yourself and the world. Um, I'd like to know, in you know, in in your years in this field, have you um, and or how many times have you encountered similarly uh, seemingly telepathic uh, cases, but not alien or you know UFO related? Well, you're asking a very interesting question. Uh, one of the things I'm very interested in is the whole topic of ontology, that is, the meaning of things. So, in some ways, we're, we're asked about questions of meaning here, I believe, and it is not clear exactly what the meaning of alien intelligence is. It's, it's that we're certainly not alone. Now, I speculate that, think of it like this, that we, you and I agree we're living in four dimensions, five and physicists say that eight is an easy reach. Michio Kiko says 11 dimensions. So think about this, that we're living in, enmeshed in multidimensional universe. You, you can't be separate from it. It's in us. It's in our body-mind. So all manner of, of um, how should I say, psychological phenomena can occur in that space, in that 11-dimensional, 10-dimensional, or 8-dimensional space some of which is telepathic. Other people in other cultures have different experiences. The Irish have tradition of fairies. Uh, in other cultures, they have tradition of spirits. So in some ways, I believe the, the entity space, the, multi, the multiverse that we live in, we are connected to, but don't necessarily need to all the time communicate. We, we couldn't possibly stay in a spiritual space all the time or in a telepathic space all the time. If I need to connect with someone, I can open myself up. And, and telepathic ability or psychic ability is inherent in brain. And that's part of my contention. It's really interesting what you're saying. And I would like to explore this a little bit more. But first, I wanted to ask about what I see as somewhat of the evolution of the abduction experience, if you will, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that in the 70s when it became, or it began to, to become popular, you know, through the Betty and Barney Hill case, for example, or Travis Walton, yeah. and then you saw yeah. in the 80s, um, you know, uh, Whitley Strieber's book uh, came out and just kind of rekindled that well into the 90s. Yeah. However, I get the, the feeling, and, and perhaps is, you know, it's me not talking to the right people out there, but I get the feeling that the abduction experience is not what we saw in those almost three decades of a very clinical type of procedure, if you will. Exactly. What can you tell me about that? How has it changed, if any? I believe that uh, in the modern era, anyway, that part of what has been happening is that uh, aliens have needed to inquire about us, and they uh, studied us as a clinical species for a while uh, because they didn't know how dangerous we were. Uh, if you imagine that you're encountering a, a completely alien entity, uh, you're not sure exactly uh, how to interact with them. So initially, just as we do when we're approaching a, a new animal species, we sometimes will dissect it 
and uh, early medicine did that. And so I think the alien intelligences are were initially doing that. Once they saw that we were not going ahead and destroying the planet with nuclear weapons for the moment anyway, that that we were safe, that we could be dealt with, that they can encounter us, and that we were, weren't going to blow them up, because they could certainly blow us up. Uh, once they found that out, then the relations started becoming more normalized, and I, I, I believe that the that they are working with the certainly the Navy, Air Force to uh, enhance our ability to travel in space. And by the cases that you have uh, researched and worked on, does it seem that it's one or two particular species that are doing this, or is it a variety of, of species that you know are taking people? For you know some of these experiments, or to interact with them in in various ways. Uh, I heard a a, a lecture um, two years ago, and uh, the uh, person presenting talked about as many as eleven different uh, species in a nosology. There are certainly, I think, people agree on five at this point: the short grays, the tall grays. Uh, there's a reptilian species, uh, a couple of Orion species. I mean, I don't know really how to think about that topic, but I'm at least aware that this conversation is going on with people who are more familiar with this kind of thing than I am. I'm, I'm coming to this conversation principally as a clinical investigator. Uh, a person, uh, we, in our field, we try to maintain a position of what we call pure phenomenology. That is, we don't bring an understanding to it. We listen, we get information, and, and then we come to some sort of understanding. I come to this conversation through neuroscience. While we're talking about that, the other thing that I wanted to ask you was, obviously, you know, times have changed. I feel like it's more common to find people who are open to discussing these topics, but... A few decades back, when John Mack, for example, was researching all of this, the scientific community was definitely not really on board with these topics. I don't think they really are to this day. However, there's people like you who have had the courage to come forward and say that, hey, you know, there is something going on and it's worth paying attention to. How much has the landscape changed in your field in regards to this uh, phenomenon, is it still treated somewhat taboo? Are professionals told to kind of stay away from it for the most part? First of all, I'm retired now, so I'm not constrained by the academic ladder or by writing papers. I'm simply telling my experience. Uh, John Mack, when he undertook these studies, became unpopular at the medical school. In fact, he lost his chairmanship because of that. So it has always remained somewhat controversial to investigate something that is uh, not considered mainstream. Uh, Kinsey did the same thing with sex. John Mack was investigating something that people didn't want to talk about. There was a lot of suppression going on about the, the information anyway. Uh, he was killed by a drunk driver. The drunk driver spent two years in prison. It was always somewhat suspicious 
as to uh, why that occurred. Uh, I, I don't want to in, invite suspicion, but, you know, John was a controversial figure, although he was brilliant. He was a Pulitzer Prize winner. He wrote a book on Thomas uh, uh, T.S. Uh, Lawrence. He was scrupulous in his work. He was an honest uh, broker. And uh, knowing him, I know that uh, that he didn't mind that he lost the chairmanship because he felt that the truth was more important. Right. And yeah, I remember reading a bit about that. And uh, it definitely takes, like I said, a lot of courage for, for someone to stand on what they said in the face of, uh, you know, so much uh, <laughs> uh, suspicion and, and, and criticism. While we're talking about abductions, I wanted to ask something because it's very common. Uh, and I'm not trying to downplay the, uh, the experience, but it's very common for, for, sorry to sound redundant, but for <laughs> when this experience happens... It's a very individual experience, if you will. Did, in yeah. all your years, have you ever come across a case where more than one person was involved in the abduction and, and along the lines of, for example, Betty and Barney Hill? No, I haven't. And in, in fact, it's very interesting. Since I've been uh, involved in this project this year, I've had two radio hosts who, after the program, told me about experiences they had mm. uh, with uh, 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 visitations by a uh, uh, flying saucer over their house and lake. So people are telling all the time about these experiences, but they are somewhat afraid, and especially telling a psychiatrist, you, they wonder, well, I ha had this experience, am I crazy? And most of the time I'm saying, you're sounding pretty sane to me, and I made my living making these kinds of distinctions. Yeah, that's one thing that I will say also is that I'm I'm always surprised uh, who comes forward in in private to uh, to share <laughs> yes. some some uh, exactly. it's strange experience that's for sure. I might as well ask that question while we're on the topic. Have you yourself experienced something like that that you couldn't explain? No, I am. I'm really sorry that I have not. I uh, I've attended as a member of the contact community now six years. Uh, I have not seen a, a flying object, a, an unidentified aerial object. My wife two years ago was with a group of uh, several hundred people, and uh, they were a Joshua tree that year, and a fleet of uh, unidentified aerial objects flew over in a quite uh, well-planned formation, it seems. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Which actually, uh, it also uh, brings me to another question that I had for you. A lot of times, it seems that some, uh, especially decades ago, it seems like these experiences were happening in very remote areas. However, with the, you know, as time went yeah. on, it wasn't strange to hear that people in New York City or Los Angeles would have very similar experiences. Is there any particular yeah. geographical region that you saw as being more active than others? Well, there do seem to be uh, sites that uh, craft will sort of locate over for periods of time. For example, I mean, I asked myself the question, why are crop circles showing up in Brazil now uh, as opposed to why, you know, uh, because they've been moving around. 
So that means the craft are moving around. And I don't know, I can't figure out uh, why any particular location. I think the reason that they're becoming uh, more visible or making themselves more apparent to urban populations is that they now know we don't, they don't need to fear us. Right. Although you see, if you're seeing a real uh, aerial object like that, you will oftentimes see jets scramble right afterwards. And that's a sure sign. Hmm. The, the, the other thing that's interesting to me, and I'm sure as others, is why do these objects completely disappear? They'll be present, they'll make a motion, and then they're gone completely. So it invites the question, is this interdimensional travel? Uh, or, or is this a fabulous camouflage or excessive speed or faster than light speed? I mean, who knows? Right, and it kind of echoes another aspect of, of the experience, like the one you mentioned at the top of the show, where this woman saw these beings just, you know, walk through her wall. It's, it's almost like they defy our laws of physics. Exactly. What can we uh, make of that? Because one of the things that I've seen become really popular in the last few years is basically altered states of consciousness through psychedelics. Yes. And it seems that, you know, anybody that has read the books of Graham Hancock or uh, uh, yes. Rick Strassman, they, yes. the experiences that, that these people have in these altered states a lot of times are very, very similar to the abduction experience. Have you had a chance to look into that? And, and how has that helped you maybe understand the phenomenon more? Yes, I think it's a fascinating question. Uh, my principal uh, area of expertise back when I was a younger psychiatrist was psychopharmacology. And I did some of the original uh, 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 research with E.I. Lilly on some of the compounds they're using now. Uh, so we, we invite the question about what is the psychopharmacology of, of, of these events? Well, uh, my grandson is a uh, an expert in um, psychedelics and runs a uh, group in Boulder, which is a hotbed right now of psychedelic research. And uh, what they're uh, reporting, and I've never done a DMT. Uh, they, there's a compound called DMT, which is an endogenous neurotransmitter, which is apparently high at birth, high at death. And for people who practice meditation on a regular basis, apparently their DMT levels are higher. DMT is a, psych a kind of a psychic enhancer, if you will. Extended, what is called extended state DMT requires a certain uh, elegant uh, pharmacology to, to take. But people who do extended state DMT experience describe frequently uh, communication with direct aliens for some some period of time, and they take information back uh, from these experiences, which helps them apparently in personal growth and spiritual growth. It's such a fascinating topic to to kind of explore, and one of the things that uh, really caught my attention about this whole phenomenon when I began to to research was that uh, yeah. DMT, uh, dimethyltryptamine, we produce it. And it's also found in 
and many living beings, and as well as the yeah. uh, the the in the brew ayahuasca that's made out of uh, roots yeah. from the Amazon. Yeah. So this yeah. has definitely been put there, if you will, by someone or something. Yeah. When we look at the abduction experience, then clearly we're just speculating at this point. But does that mean that yeah. you know these ancient civilizations that or, or previous civilizations they had access to? These psychedelics were they uh, in contact with these entities, and how much of that contact can we attribute to our human evolution? Uh, you know, one of these speculations about the early origins of hominids was that uh, hominids on the plains of Africa were eating mushrooms growing in elephant dung. That was one of their few sources of, of food. So they would eat these fungi and apparently have an elevated state at that point. And, and that some of the creative intelligence that hominids developed may have been the consequence of eating psychedelic mushrooms. So I think this has probably been a part of our culture for many years. Uh, if we go back and look at the ancient civilizations 12, 13, 14,000 years ago, I think there's even evidence that they found archaeologically then that shows that psychedelics were a feature of the culture. It often brings me to the theory that the brain is essentially, or at least the human brain is some sort of consciousness antenna and it's always made me question Absolutely. should that should that um, be the case then do these certain chemicals um, that we can encounter um, you know in, on earth as well as endogenously do they make us let's say like a conductor do they would they make us like better conductors for that sort of thing I think so. It's a little complicated because there are several layers to this question. One is basically the physiology of brain that is in, in regular meditation, people enter states of brain coherence. So left and right brain are talking much more efficiently to each other. So that's one, one way. The other, uh, part of my understanding of the physiology of brain at this point is uh, I've been taking a serious look at what are the biophysics of neuronal brain matter. That is, what are the physics of the neuron, the biophysics of the neuron, the brain cell itself? And as I've looked into this deeply, it seems as if there are structures that are outside of the nucleus of the cell uh, that are called microtubules. Now, when we start thinking, when we make the transition from Newtonian physics to quantum physics, we have to think in, the, in, in a manner of size. So the smaller you get, the closer you get to the quantum level, if you think of, uh, think of it that way. So... A microtubule is a very, very, very small structure in the brain, inside the neuron, inside the cell itself. 
these uh, tubules can, they're dynamic. They change uh, within a matter of five hours. They'll, they'll change length. Inside the tubule is the even smaller structure called the lumen, which is a kind of uh, uh, hollow space. And it goes from end to end. So the microtubule is polarized. It responds to electric magnetic signal. So as you get down to smaller and smaller size, you're taking a look at uh, structures which are about the size of water molecules. Now, a water molecule is about 0.3 nanometers. That's an incredibly small right. <laughs> um, object. And so... I believe that somehow or another, these microtubules are resonant chambers or transistors or capacitors, or they function in some way in the biophysics to allow us to perceive a broader field. And uh, several speakers use the term unified field. I use the term unified fractal field because it helps me diagrammatically uh, envision it in my mind. Our brain fascinates me, especially when you add this element of, uh, of psychedelics and what it can do. And in the last few years has become something very, very popular. Shifting gears here briefly because we got to go to break in a bit. But sure. how do you see the many uh, studies that seem to be out there now that show that psychedelics can actually be beneficial for a lot of people who suffer from uh, mental health problems? Uh, problems? Oh, I think there's no doubt we're, we're on the cusp of a major change in the way we're treating uh, what we now call mental disorders, uh, and psychedelics will be a major feature of that. I was a naval officer, so I saw guys coming back from Nam who had been in the Hanoi Hilton. Mm. They had been tortured, and if we had had MDMA at that time, you bet those guys would have been getting it. Wow. Over the years, I've read so many reports from people who had PTSD from, from war and even domestic violence and just different, you know, different types of trauma. Yeah. And it's really yeah. uh, encouraging and, and it's really exciting, really, to see the promise that psychedelics hold. And we've seen in Colorado, I believe you said your son was there, uh, Colorado the grand, voted... The Grinson Boulder, Colorado group called the NOAC Society. And I'm sure they were, they were very excited when uh, Colorado voted to uh, decriminalize to a large extent, I believe, uh, mushrooms. Yes. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of where we're, we're, we're heading. Um, have you seen anyone that has undergone this type of psychedelic therapy? And have you seen... I have. I have. I've been uh, uh, in communication with the principal research, research group at the University of Colorado in Fort Collins, and they're doing uh, a, a fair amount of research on MDMA and, and psychotherapy. And I have seen personally two vets who were highly traumatized undergo uh, MDMA therapy. And today, and this is just two years after they had their treatments, and it usually takes a couple of treatments and talking psychotherapy at the same time, uh, These both of these men have re made remarkable changes. Neither one of them could marry. They were isolated. They were drinking. 
uh, and now their uh, their lives are back on track. That's really great to hear, and I really hope that in the very, very near future, more people will have access to these uh, uh, medicines, because that's really what it is. And just really quick before the break, and just to kind of wrap up this little side trip we took, do you know if any other uh, people in your field that maybe are currently still in the field, do they are they open to using psychedelics? I, I know a lot of people you know, theorize that, well, you know, they're never going to actually legalize this because major pharmaceutical companies will be losing money. You know, the, the usual arguments that are put forth. Yeah. Do you find that the professionals out there are welcome this type of therapy or are there reservations? Do they still think that these are just drugs with no benefits? What you're going to see is, first of all, and it's happening now, uh, certainly uh, the times that I've been in Denver and Boulder and talked to clinicians up there, there's a lot of underground uh, use that is being uh, helpful to people. Right. Uh, and, and what's going to happen is that you're going to see increasing pressure on, on this underground use to be made uh, permissible. Now, it's not going to happen within my professional lifetime, but I certainly think that within one or two generations, you're going to see uh, psychedelics used appropriately, scientifically, and with great benefit. We can, we can hope so. Yeah. yeah, I think it's it's really important for everyone to just remember that pretty much everything around us in the right concentrations can be a poison. You know, in excess, everything That's can true. be a poison. Yes. And everything in, Absolutely. you know, at the right amount most things can help us. Yes, I think the Buddha said something like that. <laughs> Moderation. Sure. Right. <laughs> Dr. Johnson, we're going to take a, a break here. Do you mind just hanging on the line for a few minutes and then we'll come back and pick yeah, up our conversation? Sure. Awesome. And uh, yeah, we're going to come back and continue discussing this topic. And I really want to ask uh, Dr. Johnson a little bit more about the interdimensional aspect of this experience because I feel that with the passage of time that's kind of where some of the evidence seems to be pointing us towards not so much the uh, spaceship from from another planet however I'm not trying to say that that is not also happening because we're still trying to figure out this phenomena. And I also love the fact you said side trip. I mean, your, your brain was definitely on that frequency. You're right. I did not consciously did that, but <laughs> thanks for pointing that out. We're going to head to the break right now with a song by one of my favorite bands, uh, KMFDM. This is from their short time as the band MDFMK. Apparently, there were some legal issues happening around 2000 that they needed to sort out. So their solution was to just flip the initials the other way, <laughs> which is kind of genius. Yeah, if you I think mean, about it. yeah, they should have just done that. Why add a letter to it? I mean, that, that's brilliant. Right. <laughs> so uh, this song is called Missing Time, you know, to keep up with the theme here. Uh, I know a lot of people that experience abductions uh, will experience missing times like it, it was with uh, the case with Travis Walton, Betty Barney Hill and and many other people. Uh, so we're going to enjoy that, guys. We're going to be coming right up. West of the Rockies on the Independent FM. I'm here. Genevieve is here. And our guest, Dr. Michael Johnson, is on the line. And he'll be joining us on the other side of the break. And we're going to continue this conversation then. For now, enjoy this tune, guys. Here we go.
the second hour of west of the rockies i'm frank thank you guys for sticking around guys we are having a really really fun time with our guest dr michael johnson tonight a little bit of back announcing uh you just heard a little bit of joe satriani one of my favorite musicians that guy is like fine wine he just gets better and better with age i've had the pleasure of <laughs> <laughs> watching him play live uh, a few occasions always mind-blowing we just heard light years away from his album black swans and wormhole wizards honestly one of his most amazing songs in my humble opinion before that we had a little bit of uh mdfmk which was kmfdm as i mentioned before the break uh with the song missing time really cool song off of the uh heavy metal 2000 soundtrack Great little movie. If you've never seen it, it was one of those like animated movies, kind of cult flicks. Was it one of those um, music only animations? Um, you know, no speaking, so to say. No, it was. It was. It was definitely a movie. Had a storyline, and then they they would use songs to kind of carry the story forward. So uh, yeah, definitely check those out. Heavy metal and heavy metal two thousand. Uh, cool little flicks, definitely midnight movies, if you know what I mean, right? Like, it's, it's the kind of stuff that you put on late at night when you can't fall asleep and it's just uh, takes you for a little ride. That said, uh, it's always Simon and your Frank on Twitter, West of the Rockies on Facebook. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at WOTR Radio and check out the website, WOTRradio.com, where you can find all our interviews and links to our YouTube channel. Uh, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, all those services that you can sign up for. You can do it from there. Definitely sign up for, to our YouTube channel. We're going to be a, a contact in the desert, so we hope to come with some new content from there. And tonight's guest will be present as well. That's right. And uh, before I ask him what he's got in store for us there, I want to remind folks that I'm joined by Genevieve, Genevieve Uway on Twitter, and uh, you can catch here Thursdays hosting her very own show, No Added Flamers. Music, fun facts, jokes, and a whole lot more. Somebody told me I should slow down when I say that because it sounds like I'm saying something else. So <laughs> I will definitely make I'm a note of that. I'm going to try and figure that one out now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's something to keep you busy for the rest of the evening. Let me get Dr. Michael Johnson back on the line. Dr. Johnson, can you hear us okay? Yes. Now, as Genevieve mentioned, you will be at this year's uh, Contact in the Desert Conference uh, which has been dubbed the uh, Woodstock of UFO conventions. And I tend to agree. It's definitely a, a unique experience uh, if, if folks haven't checked it out. Is this your first year attending as a speaker? And uh, what uh, can people expect from your presentation? This will be my first year as a speaker. However, I have been uh, serving the contact community as a volunteer since uh, the first conference in 2013, I was actually the doorman uh, in the dining hall for the first five years. So I got to know all the participants pretty well. <laughs> nice. That's cool. Now, uh, Genevieve, I know that uh, during the break you mentioned you wanted to make sure we touch on something from the first hour, correct? Oh, yes. Um, you know, you were mentioning your kind of interest, not interest, um, but looking at this from an ontological perspective and the vibe or you know what I got from what you were saying was that a lot of psychic or psychic seeming experiences 
seemed to be in a way a matter of interpretation and how you see them and exactly yeah you know some things may seem very disconnected from other psychic experiences yet yes. depending on what template we put over them they can be interpreted exactly. actually all possibly as alien or non-alien well i think one can personally discriminate uh, one's own experience so if one is having a and and I want to emphasize something you said, that is, the way we interpret mental phenomenon is is filtered through a social construction of reality that we have internalized. So every phenomenon we see, we make an interpretation on. And one of the things we do as adults is we language the experience, so we name it. And, uh, for example, when Native Americans first saw the ships, uh, uh, when the, the ships landed in, in North America, they didn't see them as ships. They saw them as floating islands with trees. So when we, in the modern age, have encounters with craft, we filter those through the language and uh, the semiotics, that is, the symbols that we know. So this is true not only of alien encounter, but because we're of a general consciousness, and perhaps, again, I invite the audience to, to consider what it really means to be living in a multidimensional universe. And uh, physicists agree that there are uh, uh, many universes beyond the ones that we conventionally have to operate in. Uh, yeah, it, you know, it reminds me of how we went from Erich von Däniken talking about the Vimanas and then, you know, we're talking about these sort of things. And like you said, and then others in other times have interpreted them as ships so yeah there's definitely that sort of connection and the difference of interpretation there i want to point out a problem that that people often have there is a notion in psychology it's called the theory of cognitive dissonance so that theory predicts that you will only believe that which you already believe and data which is not consistent with your belief system, you'll reject because it doesn't fit in your data pattern. All phenomena are interpreted that way with cognitive dissonance. Well, what I've observed among people who are open to uh, this kind of conversation is that they have less dissonance with these ideas. And the more evidence that, uh, that we're accumulating from astronauts, from pilots, uh, from uh, uh, representatives from the Vatican. All the evidence that we're beginning to accumulate now over decades, it's uh, compelling evidence. And so the dissonance in our culture is decreasing. That's a really interesting thought. Basically, we are hopefully becoming more open-minded people. Yes, exactly so. Now, Dr. Johnson, one of the things that I, I wanted to, to bring uh, to you just to get your opinion on, a lot of people will argue that these experiences are happening, you know, just inside 
these uh, people's heads, if you will. A lot of people say it's just night terrors. What type of evidence or what can we uh, measure, if you will, that lets us know that these experiences are not just a hallucination as many people would like to think it is? I'll tell you a bit of a story. I, uh, during my two years as a Naval Reserve officer, medical officer, um, uh, following a shift of taking torture histories, we would uh, drink uh, at the officer's bar and uh, other uh, officers would, would dr uh, drink there too. And we would hear Marine pilots and Navy pilots talk about bogeys they had seen in their flights on not too irregular basis. But of course, they can't talk about it uh, because as soon as they say that they have had an alien encounter, they've lost their flight permissions, licenses. So nobody talks about it. Commercial pilots don't talk about it because they lose their license. But you'll have people at the conference, former pilots, former commercial pilots, astronauts reporting their own experiences. So when you've got credible people talking about these experiences in a very personal and real way, it's undeniable. To what extent do you think those people that are possibly, at least seemingly trying to silence these people, to what extent do you think they actually believe what is coming out of their mouths is true, but they just don't want to deal with it or they don't want it to get out? I think there's a tendency not to talk about it because the price of talking about it is too high. Uh, you get referred to guys like me if you talk too much about this kind of thing. So uh, there's a, a cultural tendency to repress that which is in some ways not accepted in social reality. Uh, when you've got people in responsible positions, for example, two years ago, we heard from the Canadian former uh, Minister of Defense of Canada saying that Canada and North America has been covering up this data for decades. And when you have a man coming out of a position like that, putting his credibility on the line, then it's believable. When you have a representative from the Vatican, The Vatican has a huge astronomical library and observatories all around the globe. When you have a representative there speaking about their data, then you, it gives credibility. It's not just a matter of, uh, of individual belief. It's a matter now that there are thousands of people who have had credible experiences. One of the things that I remember reading uh, a few years back was that apparently in ancient African tribes, people that by today's definitions will be classified as having some type of mental health problem. They were seen as oracles or seers that could communicate with entities that we could not yeah. see, hinting at this idea or, or this theory, possibility of, of another dimension on top of ours. I know we focus a lot on people with credentials and people that have no history of any type of ailments that could discredit their testimony, but have you ever come across somebody that 
maybe had signs of, of some mental health issue like schizophrenia or something like that. But what they yeah, were yes. telling In you fact, was, I did. Yes. can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Well, uh, early on, uh, when uh, uh, Dr. Mack was referring patients, I, I, I actually uh, interviewed four patients. The one case I've already talked about. The other three, I had one patient who had clearly a, uh, 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 probably a schizophreniform illness, and the, the story was convoluted in ways that were unrecognizable. Uh, you could tell, uh, it was just very apparent this was a major mental illness. The two other cases was, was just enough uncertain for me that I said I, to Dr. Mack, I don't think you ought to include these in your your case reports. So there, yeah, I think there are uh, instances where people have had high levels of personal trauma uh, uh, and some major mental illness in which there are distortions being made. The interesting thing is that, however, there is a commonality in the stories that people who are not identified as having any major mental disorder uh, telling the same stories. On that note, I know in recent years we've seen a bunch of articles, at least online, where different cultures, shamanic cultures, a lot of the time, they've been analyzed and they often see certain people that we might call schizophrenic or having other sort of you know, mental disorders, they see those people as having some sort of psychic abilities. What do you know about that or what have you seen in that field? I think indigenous cultures are much more in tune with the intuitive nature that we all possess. And that in some ways, I think in our own culture, we've gone a little too far in, in our excess of thinking of of, of individuals diagnostically as putting them in, in some kind of box. When you approach this work completely without assigning boxes to any report that you get, at that point you're listening as a pure phenomenologist. So I don't put people in boxes of any kind. I listen and pay attention to the person into the conversation. And indigenous cultures, I think, are much more aware of, of, of these phenomena than we are. Our modern culture has uh, removed us from the organic nature of ourselves, uh, has removed us some from the biophysics of our nature. And as that has occurred, we've lost touch. And uh, as a result, probably our identifying people as, path, as having uh, pathologic problems that in some ways from another perspective are, are not impaired. So all we have to do really is to change our perspective a bit, and that is in fact happening. Psychiatry is moving in two directions simultaneously. One direction is improving our capacity to know more and more about the way the brain is working. And secondly, that we're becoming more open to understanding that there are levels of understanding that are beyond uh, uh, traditional psychiatry. We're, we're now the models that uh, I'm using in my own thinking are invoking uh, the findings of quantum physics 
uh, and uh, other uh, ways of taking a look at consciousness itself. You know, they're talking about multiverses now, that we it is possible for us to be in multiverses. One of the things I have problem with is that we are immersed in these dimensions. It's not as if they're out there someplace, that we are in those dimensions, that they're in our body, in our brain, that we are of the essence of that these dimensions. So they're not above us, to be honest, they're inside us. We are it. You know, in terms of evolutionary benefits, if any, what benefits could societies such as ours really get from silencing and demonizing these sort of, at least for us, mystical experiences? I think demonization oftentimes happens when we don't understand a phenomenon there's a tendency to get trapped in, in what I was referred to as dualistic thinking. Thing is either one thing or another. As you move beyond dualistic thought and um, consider that there are many shades of being, then I think uh, you're less trapped by this kind of dualism, which is a problem in, in the way Western thought uh, perceives that's really interesting because to me it seems almost backward because for a long time humanity has actually respected what nowadays at least in western societies we call the kooks so i do think in a lot of ways our understanding of these topics is moving backwards for now at least but i'm really glad that scientists like you are taking this um a bit further now I grew up in Indiana, and in Indiana, we we ask uh, when we're hearing stories, we want to hear more. So, as a scientist, I always uh, uh, hear these issues with some skepticism. I have to, I hear, I want to hear more. Tell me more about the phenomenon, and the more evidence that I get, then I can base my my thinking and and feelings about these issues more realistically. And I just want to go back to something you said earlier as far as man moving away from uh, nature, uh, essentially. And, you know, in, in the last few years, I've, I've speculated that perhaps if, you know, humanity have taken another path, or even if some of the... Um, indigenous tribes of the Americas had been allowed to develop on their own. I, I, and I don't know how you, if you would agree uh, with this, but I feel that it's not outside of the realm of possibility that perhaps humanity would have the ability to communicate with some of the other species Absolutely. out there. Because when I see uh, or read, actually, of these uh, psychedelic experiences, for example, people that travel and, and go through the ayahuasca ritual, a lot of them come in contact with uh, not just entities that, that seem very uh, similar in, in, in their physical nature to what people have described as the greys, but they will also encounter animals. And a lot of people even call them like their animal spirits or their spirit guides. You know, they'll see leopards or huge snakes. Uh, uh, I remember reading uh, Graham Hancock's book, 
uh, supernatural, and he talks about how these are kind of the spirits of the Amazons, if you will, or, or ancient spirits. So I know that that could sound very out there for somebody that is not very familiar with this topic, but to you who have had a chance to uh, research some of this stuff, have we moved away from our nature? Certainly, as we are rediscovering the plants uh, that historically and, and anciently have been used uh, to access uh, other levels of, of understanding and experience, these experiences like Graham described uh, are, first of all, it's interesting that the ayahuasca speakers will oftentimes talk about similar experience. Again, you're getting confirmation from people who don't know each other but who are describing very similar experiences. Now, from a neuroscience point of view, I think what's happening is that you're, you're getting, uh, in fact, we know from uh, taking a look at imaging studies of people uh, on LSD that whole brain is activated. In, in normal waking consciousness, nor, uh, whole brain is not activated. It's a activated in, in very fast time, but nonetheless, it's, a, uh, it's activated in specific regions. All those regions are very broad. They're still not whole brain. When LSD, for example, whole brain is activated. Ayahuasca, whole brain is activated. So we're accessing areas of brain that we otherwise don't use and couldn't use if we were whole brain activated all the time. <laughs> like I said, I always found some of these psychedelic experiences and their similarities to the alien abduction experience quite interesting. Now, one of the things that I also noticed a few years back is that this idea of the abductors or the visitors, you know, people refer to them by many, by many names, aliens. Uh, yes. It seems like the, the idea that they come from another dimension, if you will, it, it, it was not, not as new as I thought because it seems that uh, Jack Vallee in his book, Passport to Magonia, they came out, I believe, sometime in the 60s. I could be wrong, but I know it, it's been around for a while now. He was one of the first, if not the first, to, to put forth this theory that, uh, as you pointed out, throughout history, people have had this phenomena that they couldn't explain. And some call them fairies, some call them angels. In our modern times, we began to call them aliens. And it was really interesting that this idea had been around for so long, but it was discarded, ironically enough, by the UFO community early on in those days. However, it seems from talking to you that it's become more accepted now, right? I think it is a step forward from the earliest um, uh, understanding that UFOlogists have had. Uh, the uh, initial investigators and, uh, and people who collected evidence, uh, again, had to put this in a frame of understanding that was in that period of time. What's happened subsequently is that this whole notion of the multiverse uh, has developed in, 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 in uh, modern physics. So uh, our, our frame of understanding is increased. And it allows now for us to reposition our understanding of, about 
spiritual encounters of one kind or another. Uh, I'm of Scottish descent. Uh, I have Druid history in my deep family. And so we, we communicate with trees. Uh, I often will go forest bathing like they do in Japan uh, in order to uh, refine my roots, if you will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so truly, every culture has its own way of positioning its understanding of these transpersonal experiences. Going back to the abduction experience, and I wanted to ask you this, and uh, I kind of skipped over it because we, we were moving the conversation along, but I wanted to quickly ask, uh, one of the aspects that I know a lot of people who have had the abduction experience point out is that it's, it seems to be a generational thing, as in, you know, it started with a family member, you know, a generation or two back, and it continued within that family over, you know, subsequent generations, if you will. Is that something that you yes. found in the cases? And what does that tell you? I honestly have not uh, heard of a f- familial uh, 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 dynasty of understanding like this. I know that's described, but I personally have not uh, heard such cases. I could see quite pos- uh, quite easily how that might be the case. Because as a particular family has had some encounter, there is a a languaging and an understanding within that family about the possibility of such experiences occurring. And if, in fact, alien intelligence has awareness of the family culture, then there's going to be uh, the, there's going to be much more ease in being uh, letting themselves be exposed. I, you have to understand. In some ways, we are the aliens to them, so they don't know exactly what we're up to, and they need to know we're safe. So I think that certainly uh, aliens probably feel more comfortable with some families than others. <laughs> <laughs> right. I know it's kind of a strange overlap but i i saw that you know you have an interest in traditional chinese medicine so i'd like to know amongst various um modern day cultures what sort of differences have you seen in the reception of strange mystic psychic or alien experiences it certainly is not mainstream now uh, but uh, you know as you bring in traditional chinese medicine I started uh, doing acupuncture on uh, naval officers who were coming back from Vietnam, and we found it remarkably effective. At that point, I was invited to a panel of traditional Chinese medicine practitioners in a fusion conference in which we tried to integrate what we know in Western science that supports notions in uh, traditional Chinese medicine, TCM. So at that point, uh, uh, colleagues at the medical school were uh, Herb Benson, for example, studying the relaxation response. Uh, uh, there was a, 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 a several groups that are taking a look at the placebo response. Uh, if we try not to um, put medicine in a box, then we can start uh, trying such practices as meditation, for example. 
I, I noticed in, in uh, Sanjay Gupta's presentation uh, last night, he talked about the, the role of meditation in cultures. Uh, in Turkish culture, for example, is meditation plays a large role. So we have traditions that are not traditional Western medicine, but incorporate cultural and spiritual traditions, which are very important in healing. Wow. It's definitely fascinating stuff. And I, I was looking at the clock because I know we're kind of on the home stretch here, uh, Dr. Johnson. So yeah. let me just uh, get some of my, my last couple of questions in before we let you go. Probably the main one, and this is, uh, you know, uh, every now and then you encounter somebody that is going through some experience that would fit the uh, criteria for an encounter of some sort with an entity that we can't explain. What kind of person that, that's having those type of experiences, what can they do? I mean, what kind of resources are there? Number one, I wouldn't hesitate to talk about with someone you trust. Um, one of the things that we do as therapists is we try to create a sacred space so that there's a space that we hold in order that the full truth of the experience that the person is having can be uh, discussed, can be, the emotions can be experienced. And if a space like that is provided to such a person, a great deal has been done to let them relax about what has happened to them. And so there's less resistance. So I say the first thing is talk about it to someone you trust. It'd be a therapist, be it a friend, be it a family member, but someone who will listen to you without judgment. So that's the first thing I would advise. If you are in, if you feel you're in serious trouble and you feel like you don't have a grip on things, then I would recommend professional uh, conversations. It's pretty un unbelievable because it seems like this phenomenon is still happening to, to a few people. So yeah, absolutely. If uh, anyone listening is kind of going through something like that, uh, don't be afraid to, to talk about it. And I know you're um, professionally retired now, but how have you seen the reception of the subject matter change over the years that you've been in action? People who are in academic uh, medicine and academic fields are, are going to discuss this uh, kind of thing uh, less often. So uh, you won't see public uh, discussion, uh, certainly not in the academic papers, uh, in the traditional academic papers, in, 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 in traditional medicine, you won't see this kind of article appearing. So there's some repression still going on. Uh, the government is not helping. We don't have full disclosure yet. However, because of programs like this and because of programs like Contact, people are feeling easier about discussing uh, the these experiences. Yeah, that is definitely going to be the the key is creating a safe environment where people are not afraid to talk because, as you mentioned, there's always been a fear of being ridiculed to losing your job. I think we should not forget that that is a very real concern still for yeah. people. And yes, it is. And to what extent did you find yourself having to um, refrain from saying, or, you know, 
putting out there certain things that really were on your mind? For myself, it's not been much of a problem because I've always been sort of um, a person who's willing to explore issues on the edge. Um, it's part of uh, what has worked for me. It's part of my professional growth. Now that I'm retired, I don't have any concerns about academic titles or papers. I'm simply reporting my experience of 35 years of practice in a very complex society. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're definitely fortunate to uh, have you join the ranks of the many people that are not afraid to uh, speak their mind on this subject and to uh, uh, allow people to discuss and explore the possibilities of what could be happening. Uh, Dr. Johnson, of course, we mentioned that you're going to be a contact in the desert this year. Why don't you remind people one more time what they can expect from your lecture at this year's conference? I'm speaking at 7.30 in the morning on June the 2nd uh, in that three-day conference going on from May 31st to June 2nd in Indian Wells, California. I'm speaking at early in the morning at 7.30. I we appreciate early risers. It's going to be a non-challenging discussion, <laughs> mm -hmm. less of a lecture than a conversation. Uh, we, we hope that early risers uh, who uh, want to be uh, casually introduced to a very uh, challenging topic will come. That's very cool. It sounds like it's going to be a great time for everyone. Dr. Johnson, what can I say? Thank you so much for sharing with us your many years of of experience researching this and uh, we definitely look forward to uh, to seeing you at Contact in the Desert this year and uh, best of luck with everything and thank you again for taking the time to be with us tonight. Thank you, we'll sir. See you there. And that was Dr. Johnson, Dr. Michael Johnson. We definitely touched on a lot of different aspects of this experience. We have done many shows over the years focusing on, on the abduction phenomena. And every time we talk about it, I just I feel like we just gain a little bit more of an understanding of what's going on. But with that understanding, you know, it just brings with it a, a completely new set of questions. Dr. Johnson was great. And I don't think we've had that many opportunities to discuss this topic with a psychiatrist at all, especially, you know, not from that point of view. And I definitely think that was incredibly insightful and i am really looking forward this is the one time i am looking forward to a 7 30 a.m lecture <laughs> right <laughs> i would have never said that at university <laughs> right and yeah if you if you want to catch this uh this presentation by uh dr michael johnson uh, as I, as we mentioned go to contactinthedesert.com to get your tickets i believe there's still tickets available it's going to be taking place at the indian wells resort and spa in Indian Wells, California, from May 31st through June 3rd. They do a great job here every year, and uh, we look forward to see what they have in store this year. And we uh, will be bringing you our review, as we do every year, on what happened, who we saw, and what was new. I feel like every year there's always a new discovery of sorts. There is a new idea being put forth that really challenges and, and it stimulates the, uh, the, the brains of the many attendees there. Oh, definitely. The, the lineup this year. I love it when I can at least pick out five, ten people, you know, names that I've never heard of. Because that lets me know 
there's definitely more to be discovered and these aren't always like brand new people in terms of age they're not like 20 year olds just like dr michael johnson he's experienced in his field we just haven't happened to have the you know pleasure of listening to his studies and experiences so it's going to be an exciting one well and i think that that's the yeah the exciting thing of time passing and this subject becoming less and less taboo is that we're going to have people like dr michael johnson come forward that have researched it but just never had the opportunity to share their findings or their theories and their ideas so it's definitely something to look forward to especially as we were discussing earlier in the week with the uh, sad passing of uh Stan Freeman, it seems that we're losing a lot of that first generation of the uh, contemporary UFO movement. And at the same time, you know, we're getting these new voices coming out. So it's definitely going to help humanity as a whole to understand what's happening. And, and I believe eventually we will have the answers that we so look for. Now, we're going to go out with, uh, oh yeah, we're going to go out with a little bit of tool. Because I just heard this song this week and it reminded me how great of a song it is. Funny story, this was, I think this was like the last CD I bought at Tower Records many, many years ago. And uh, it was it was around the time where, no offense, I felt like CDs were getting a little too expensive. Like $22 and 96 for a CD. That sounds a bit, a bit harsh. But luckily, music is at an accessible price nowadays. So it's easy to rebuild your collection. This is definitely a must album for me, no matter what happens, like in those 10 island disc lists, this would definitely have a place there. This is Tool from uh, uh, their album called Anima, and the song is called by the same name, to make it easy. Amazing track. Take care. Be safe. God bless. Don't do anything too crazy. We want to see you back next week. Until then, bye-bye. Bye. West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM, Los Angeles.